You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, good morning, Refuge fam. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Hey, if you're new, you're not a part of the Refuge family, welcome to the Refuge family. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Refuge is a new church in Southeast Austin serving Austin at large. And so as a new church, we'd love to connect with you, right? And so uh, if you would do me a huge favor, jump into the video description, wherever that is for you, whether on YouTube or Facebook, wherever that is, uh, hit the connect link. Send us a little bit of information. We'd love to learn how we can serve you, how we can pray for you. If you need anything, drop it in there. We know times are tough. So if you need some, drop it in there. Let us know. Uh, We would love to try to get that uh, over to you, whatever you need. And so, yeah, in addition to sending a little more information about who we are and, and, you know, what we do, inviting you to get involved here at the church any way that you see fit, any way that you uh, want to. We want to be open to you coming in and being a part of our family. And so welcome again. Uh, Thank you so much. We look forward to connecting with you. Now, right now, let's go ahead and jump into the word of God, into the scriptures. We're going to be finishing up our series in the book of Jonah today. This is our last week before we jump into some Christmas sermons, Uh, but we're finishing in a little bit of a different way. We're actually going to be finishing our series in Jonah in the book of Luke. Okay, now you may be thinking, huh? And I get you, I know, but just give me a second to explain. The primary reason we're doing this is because as I was preparing, like one thing started sticking out to me as I was processing everything. And it was about the culture we live in, right? And, and one of the things I thought about was, man, that we live in a culture that loves hero stories. Hear me again. We live in a culture that loves hero stories. We love it when a guy, when a girl sees the vulnerable at-risk people and and they jump into the danger uh, and really just like save the day, right? We cannot get enough of that stuff. If you want proof, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question, not a rhetorical question. I want to give you a second to answer it. I want to ask you, what do you think the highest grossing film franchise or series of all time is? Go ahead, take a second. Highest grossing film franchise or series of all time. If you guess the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you are 186% correct, all right? Uh, The MCU has put out 23 films, altogether grossing 22.5, wait for it, billion dollars. That's nearly a billion dollars of film, yo. We love hero movies. There's no question about it. We love hero stories. No question. Right. The real question is why? Why do we love these stories? And I researched it. I looked into it and there were so many interesting things. But in all the research, one thing really stood out. And that was this, that the idea that hero stories show us how to be, guess, a hero. They show us how to be a hero. We attach to them because they teach us what heroics look like, what, what, what life looks like, what we look like when we are brave, when we cast caution to the wind, when we, when we jump out. And, and that's really important. Hear me. That's critical to think about because it reveals something about who we are. It reveals that, that we all want to be a hero. We all want to be a hero. And, and no, it doesn't mean that we all want to wear a mask or spandex or something like that. No, that's not what that means. But, but we all want to live, check this out, an impactful life. 
We all want to live a meaningful life. We all want to have a life that has purpose, that has significance. We all desire that deep down inside. And hear me, friends, I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, it seems to me that in Scripture, like Scripture is filled with people that are called to do impactful, significant, meaningful, purposeful things. Right there, there's Joseph protecting his family in Genesis. In Exodus, there's Moses leading the nation of Israel out of slavery. King David in like a whole chunk of the Old Testament, right? Defeating God's enemies as the king of Israel. They all inspire us to be heroic, to do heroic things, to, 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 to live a life of meaning and, 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 and purpose. But if we're honest, in addition to inspiring us, they also scare us a bit. They also scare us a bit because in their inspiration, they also call us. They call us upward. They call us to, to have a humility that makes us question whether we'll ever really be seen or have a voice. They call us to have a mercy that makes us question whether we'll ever receive justice in the end. They call us to a compassion that makes us question whether we'll ever get as much as we give to X, Y, or Z person, Right? We love hero stories because they show us what life could be like, how impactful we could be if we were just a little more selfless, a little more compassionate, a little more humble, a little more merciful, a little more brave. We love hero stories, friends. And so today, to finish up our time in Jonah, we're going to take a look at a hero story. We're going to take a look at Jesus. To finish up Jonah, we're going to take a look at Jesus. And we're going to take a look at Jesus in actually a very similar position that Jonah found himself in. We're going to take a look at how Jesus handles that and how really Jesus, as really, I mean, like, like the ultimate hero, navigates them and crafts out this impactful, significant, beautiful moment. And I want us to, to, to gleam from it, to gauge from it, how we too can live that way. Okay, so that's what I want to do. We're going to go to Luke 9. 51 through 56, which again lays out a scene very similar to Jonah. And as we work through the text, here's my, here's my hope, right? My hope that we would take away today is an understanding that, that, um, that in understanding, I should say, the selflessness of Christ, we gain the freedom to be selfless ourselves. I'm going to say that again because I kind of messed that up. But my hope today is that we would take away in understanding the selflessness of Christ, we gain the freedom to be selfless ourselves. And really, that frees us up to have the impactful, meaningful, purposeful life we long for. Okay, now to help us do this, we're going to break this text up into three, what I'm calling unnaturals, three unnaturals. Now, you might be asking, like, what is that? What are you talking about? Well, three things that Jesus does to an unnatural degree, right? Three things that should make us as human beings be like, God, that's crazy, right? Three unnaturals, three things he does to an unnatural degree. And the first one we're jumping off with is unnatural compassion. Okay, Jesus has unnatural compassion. In this moment, he shows unnatural compassion. We're going to be working from Luke 9. We're going to be starting in verse 51, all right? We're going to be reading from the CSB. You can read from whatever version you would like, but the CSB is going to be up on your screen. Let's go ahead and dive in. Verse 51 reads like this. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. 
Okay, if you join me in a short prayer, Father, thank you so much for your word. Bless the reading of your word and let us receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, now, I know as we begin, automatically, two things on your mind, right? How in the world is this like Jonah? Number two, how is this like show unnatural compassion? I totally understand, and I want to answer both those, but I think answering one will really give the answer to the other. When we are in Luke 9 today, we encounter Jesus uh, in a moment where Luke is telling us that he, he almost like understands or knows somehow that the time for him to be taken up is coming. Now, let's stop here because that's a really weird thing to read, right? He, the time was coming to a close for him to be taken up. What does that mean, right? That's such a random thing to read. Well, it, it means at least two things. I, I, want, I want to infer two things from that uh, to, to help us to help us get a, a, a get a, a get a bit of a picture of what's happening in Jesus' life. The first thing is that we have to infer that one, God is speaking to Jesus in some way. Okay, we don't know how. We don't know if it's audibly or if it's maybe like putting something on his heart the way God speaks to us oftentimes. But we know that God is speaking to Jesus because He knows my time has almost come to, to be taken up. Now. What does it mean that he's speaking to him? What, what is the result of it? Well, the result of it is that he has to go to Jerusalem, right? God speaks to him. He knows my time to be taken up is almost here, and he determines to go to Jerusalem. But what awaits him in Jerusalem, okay? What is going to get him up? What is going to take him up in Jerusalem that's only in Jerusalem? Is there like a ladder? Is there something that's going to take him to heaven? No. The only way Jesus is getting back to heaven. The only way he's being taken up in heaven is, is after dying. And the death that he would be dying, the place where he would be dying, is in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that Jerusalem was a rebellious city with a violent past. A rebellious city with a violent past. How, how do we know this? We'll just take a look at Luke 13, verse 34. And look at how Jesus describes Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Okay, this is where things get really interesting, okay? Because if you remember, in the story of Jonah, God also speaks to him. God speaks to him. And he calls him to go to a city, a city, a rebellious city with a violent past, the city of Nineveh. And what we read and what we get from Jonah chapter one is upon receiving this call, Jonah dips out the exact opposite direction. He's gone. He's gone. He runs. Actually, we come to find out because he's scared and worried that if he goes, they will receive him and actually in turn receive mercy and grace. You see the wild contrast here. You see the, almost like the irony. On one hand, you have Jonah, the prophet, who receives a word from God to go to the rebellious and violent city, yet he runs fearful that they'll accept him and they'll receive mercy. While on the other side, you have Jesus, the Messiah, receiving word from God to go to a rebellious city with a violent past knowing that he will not be accepted, knowing that he will die, but longing, determined to go because he desires for them to receive mercy. It's a wild contrast. 
It's a wild contrast, but it doesn't stop there. It actually keeps building because the language that's used in 1334, in, in Luke 13, that language of gathering under wings, that was actually a common phrase back then, a common phrase in the Hebrew community to communicate protection, okay? Protection, like God protecting his people. Craig Keener, he's a theology professor at Asbury Seminary. I love the way he breaks it down. Okay, he says this, Jewish tradition claimed that Jewish people were under God's wings. The Old Testament also portrays God as an eagle hovering over its offspring and protecting Israel under his wings, and similarly, terrifying Israel's foes. This is actually an image of God's love for his people. Mm. Let's be honest. If you are anything like me, um, this is honestly like really confusing to read. It's really confusing because it's, again, it's, it's unnatural. It's an unnatural compassion, right? You have Jesus knowing that he would be rejected, yet he's actually like, like desiring to go and to protect them. Meanwhile, I'm over here like, it takes a lot less than you being willing to kill me for me to lose my compassion for you, right? Like, let's be real. Like, how often do people say things? Say things they don't mean, hurtful things. This could be your spouse. This could be your parents, your roommates, your friends. Do they say things because they feel neglected? They feel unloved. They feel disrespected. Oftentimes with good reason. Oftentimes with good reason because we actually maybe did disrespect them, neglect them, treat them unloving. And our hearts, in response to their hurtful words, lose all desire to bring healing to them. We start thinking stuff like, well, if, if they're going to act like that, then, man, they didn't deserve my time or they didn't deserve my lover. And they're just, oh, God, they're so this, they're so that, right? Like, like our hearts respond with a complete lack of compassion in favor of, like, the self-preservation. That's how we respond oftentimes, right? And here's Jesus. Jerusalem has no good reason to deny him, no good reason to reject him. He knows that in Jerusalem are actually the people that are going to kill him. And not only is he willing to die, but he actually longs and wishes that he could protect them. It's an unnatural compassion, friends. Unnatural compassion. It's beyond what we as human beings can understand. Yet Jesus is showing us that if you want to live an impactful life, if you want to live a meaningful life, a godly, purposeful life, there will be a time where you are called to show unnatural compassion. And so that's our first point, unnatural compassion. But, but this unnatural compassion actually gives way to our second unnatural, our second point, unnatural mercy. Unnatural mercy. Let's take a look at Luke 9. We're going to read 52 through 55 here. Um, 52 starts. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned to them. And rebuked them. All right. So 
having read that Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem, he starts getting, he starts on the way, right? It's about a four-day walk, and so they would have had to had had to have some breaks and that type of thing. And and Luke tells us that he sends some disciples up to make preparations, in other words, to get a place ready. They're tired. But the disciples return and tell him, hey, it's a Samaritan village, and they have basically rejected, denied us from resting here. Now, why is that? Well, to, to make it short and sweet, it was because Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. For centuries at this point, there had been ethnic, religious, geographic uh, altercations and, and feuds going between these two peoples, uh, a few that had claimed lies that had really fueled hatred. And it ran so deep, the, the feud, the hatred ran so deep that people traveling through Samaria, Jews traveling through Samaria to Jerusalem for religious reasons, family reasons, any reason, oftentimes were denied entry into towns, denied goods, denied services, and even worse, maybe even killed. Right, Leon Morris, he's a late theology professor and pastor. He broke it down like this in, uh, in his commentary on Luke. He said, the Samaritan villagers, seeing that he determined to journey to Jerusalem, would have nothing to do with Jesus. Their feud with the Jews was so bitter that they would not help anyone travel to Jerusalem. Josephus, who was like an ancient historian, tells us that Samaritans were not averse to ill-treating pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. Uh, even to the extent of murdering them on occasion. So, they're denied entry, and hearing this injustice, this racial injustice, this, this I think, religious injustice, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, but also two of Jesus' closest friends, uh, ask him if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the village. And take a look at how Jesus responds in verse 55. It says that he turns to them and he rebukes them. He turns to them and he rebukes them. And some of us are like, yeah, right, rebuke the Samaritans. Nah, fam, he rebukes James and John. Facing racial prejudice, facing religious prejudice, Jesus' ultimate desire for his disciples is to have mercy on the guilty. To have mercy on the guilty. Now, let's be real here. For a lot of us, this is actually like really hard to hear. It rubs us kind of the wrong way, right? In a culture where fighting injustice, especially in Austin, fighting injustice is a high value, fighting injustice racially, injustice against women, injustice against immigrants, injustice against the unborn, right, for us as Christians. Um, in a culture where fighting justice is one of the highest values, this honestly doesn't seem heroic. It can almost come off as a bit of cowardice. But, but here's the thing. Jesus understands something that we don't understand. Jesus understands that fighting injustice isn't the same as advocating judgment. I want to say that again because I think it's important. Fighting injustice isn't the same as advocating judgment. We do, we do well to learn from this right here, friends, because Jesus fought injustice. All right. Jesus, in his ministry, he healed Samaritans. Right, he engaged with Samaritans. He broke stereotypes and social norms in order to do it, all with the intent of fighting injustice, creating unity, reaching outcasts, building up the lowly. Yet he knew, yet he knew that there was a difference between justice and judgment, that they were two different things. You see, justice is fighting to see what's wrong be made right. 
We fight to see the oppressed freed. We fight to see the held down built up. We fight to see the outcasted be brought back in. That's a godly activity. That's a great thing to do. We are called even as followers of Jesus to do that. But judgment is different. You see, judgment is permanently damning, condemning those who commit injustice. It's oppressing the oppressor. It's holding down those who held others down. It's outcasting those who outcast others. And this is critical for us to know because we live in a culture that has mistaken judgment for justice. I want you to hear me again. We have to know this because we live in a culture that has mistaken judgment for justice. And here's the thing. Jesus' time on earth wasn't about judgment. It was about justice and it was about mercy. Okay, there will be a day where Jesus returns and he judges all. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't judge. There will be a day where he judges all. And on that day, only those found in Jesus will be acquitted, will be found innocent. But on earth, Jesus' earthly ministry didn't aim to oppress the oppressed. In fact, he became oppressed so that the oppressed could be freed. Right? His aim wasn't to hold down those who held down. He became held down. So those who were held down could be built back up. He didn't outcast those who outcast. No, he was outcasted so that the outcast could be brought back in. He didn't, he didn't judge the guilty, right? He, he became guilt so that the guilty could be made innocent. In the gospel, Jesus is about justice, not judgment, right? Now, again, there will be a day where judgment comes. I am not denying that. But we are called to declare justice for the broken, hope for the hopeless, forgiveness for the guilty. That's what God's mercy, what Jesus' mercy calls us to as his followers. I love how Tabidi Anyabwile, he's a, an amazing pastor in the D.C. area. Okay, I love how he, how he breaks this down in his commentary on Luke. He says, in sinful fallen anger, the disciples want to call down judgment on people who have refused Jesus. This is not the Christian spirit, beloved. If people in the community reject Christ and us, we should not call for judgment. Judgment will come one day. That will be a great and terrible day. While it's still day, our job is to announce the good news. There is a way to escape the coming judgment through repentance and faith in Christ. Unnatural mercy, friends, right? Unnatural, something that's beyond what we understand, a type of mercy that fights for justice, but, but reserves judgment for God. That, that doesn't, uh, in fact, doesn't judge, but rather offers forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus for injustices committed. This is where Jonah got it all wrong, right? This is where Jonah got it wrong because where Jonah saw justice and mercy prevail, but longed for judgment, Jesus received our judgment so that justice and mercy could prevail. Right? It's an unnatural mercy. It was unnatural for Jonah, and oftentimes it's difficult and unnatural for us. Yet Jesus, again, is showing us that if you want to live an impactful life, at some point, you're probably going to be called to display this unnatural mercy. Okay, so that's our second point. There's, there's one more. One more, and I, I'm going to touch on this quick, but, but this may be the origins, really, of the, the, the first two, which is unnatural humility unnatural humility. Check out verse 56. It's really short. It's really easy uh, to overlook what this means, but I just want us to look at it because I think it's important. 
56 says, after he determined to go to Jerusalem, after he was rejected at the town, after he rebuked uh, the disciples, James and John, 56 says, and they went to another village. And they went to another village. Now that may seem small, it may seem insignificant, but, but being the Savior, being God in the flesh on earth, the authority of uh, the authority and the author of all things that are true, that are good, completely right. Jesus doesn't buck up and argue that he deserves to be led in. He doesn't, he doesn't lord it over them that he's right and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm about to die for you too. Like, don't be an idiot. Let me come in. Right? He humbly accepts their position and moves to another town, acknowledging that he's going to do something far better to see them and their sins forgiven. Right? In Acts, we're going to see that the gospel pierces into Samaria and tons of people come to faith. Jesus knew, hey, I, I, right now is okay. I, I don't, I'm not proud. I can exercise humility, understand that you don't want me here, and then the gospel is going to come get you later on. Right? Like, like that, that takes a certain amount of humility, an unnatural humility. Let me ask it to you like this. You ever been right? <laughs> like, like, I know that's a funny question, but... But have you ever been right? I mean like 100% right. Like you knew deep down in your soul, like, yo, I'm very right right now. And you had to look at a person who you knew was dead wrong and just move on from the conversation. Move on from the conversation, intentionally choosing better ways, better ways to work toward unity, forgiveness, humility, and growth in the other person. Better ways than just arguing with them right then and there. It's hard. If you've never been that right, I'm letting you know. It's, I'm not, <laughs> but, but this is a challenge for everybody. This is difficult. And here's how you know it's difficult. Because children can't do it. If you ever want to know, if you ever want to gauge on something that's difficult, just take a look at if children can do it. Right? Things that are easy for humans to do, children can probably already do them. Humility and an unnatural, this type of humility, almost an unnatural humility, that's not, that's not in children's wheelhouse. I look at my oldest daughter, she's almost three, my daughter Leah, and look at her younger brother, Jude, he's about almost getting toward a year and a half, and there are times where, where Jude has like no concept of ownership at this age, right? I mean nothing. Dude, dude doesn't know what's his, what's ours, what's hers, what's no one's, what's everyone's, you know, what belongs to somebody else completely that's not in our family. He just does not understand that concept. And so he will oftentimes walk over to Leah, grab it, and just grab whatever she has, toy, whatever, and just walk away. And it's in this moment where she loses it, right? There's a lot of like, hey, hey, that's mine. Come back. That's mine. You took that from me. And I try to let her know, like, hey, he's not going to have it forever, right? Like, like he, he's only a year and a half. I have compassion on him. That just it, That is in one ear and out the other for her, right? Because for her, in that moment, it's about the principle. The principle of that's mine. You took it. That's wrong. In other words, I'm right. Here in this moment, I'm right. And the only way that this situation gets resolved is when that kid acknowledges that I'm right, gives me back my toy, and goes and plays with something else. Right? It's funny when kids do it. 
It's funny when kids do it, but here's the thing. It's easy for us to do it as adult human beings as well. Right? When someone talks to you ugly, and 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 what your humility can you can exercise humility, right? And, and say, hey, it's okay, I, I I forgive you, let's move on. But rather, oftentimes we can our pride can rage up and say, you know, I demand an apology. In other words, I'm right. I know I'm right, and I'm going to lord me being right over you until you acknowledge and concede that I'm right and, and, and apologize to me. Right? Just, just inter- interject anything you want there, right? That, that's how it can go easily. And it's all rooted in pride, friends. It's all rooted in pride. Yet Jesus here shows us in unnatural humility. The ability to put the needs of others above your own, to work and sacrifice, lay down your life in order to serve them and build them up. It's unnatural. It's something that when we look at it, it almost seems crazy. It's unnatural humility. And so this is how you live. This is how you live an impactful life. This is how you live a meaningful, purposeful life, the life we all long for, the life that we, we watch movies and, and almost become like inspired to try to go out and live. You want to go out and live that life? Here's how you do it. Unnatural compassion, unnatural mercy, unnatural humility, just these insane, completely amazing, but extraordinarily daunting things that we're called to, to show, to, to live out at some point in this significant life, this purposeful life that we want to live out. It's a daunting task, isn't it? It's a daunting task. It seems like an amazing way to live, sure, but it also seems like an absolutely crazy way to live. Um, And if you're anything like me, uh, if I'm being honest, right, when I look at this, uh, you may also be thinking it just doesn't seem fair. Not only does it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't even really seem worth it right? Let's be honest. It doesn't seem worth it. You're telling me that in order to live a meaningful, purpose-filled, impactful life, the life I desire to live, right? I have to have compassion to the extent that I may give more than I get in my life, right? With other people. That I have to be merciful to the extent that that I have to invite those who have maybe even hurt me to be forgiven. That that I have to be humble to the extent that I lay down my life and and serve others that don't even deserve it. This doesn't seem worth it. And hear me, I agree with you. Right? I'm with you. If I'm just a guy sitting on a couch, third party, looking at Jesus serve these people, right? Like offer compassion to the same people who are going to kill him. See him offering mercy to those who rejected him. Seeing him humbly serve people who despise him. You are a hundred percent right. I'm looking at that and I'm going, no, that's not worth it. I, I, I'll, I'll stay on the couch. I'm good. But here's the thing. It's not worth it until you realize that you have a role in this story that you have a role in this story, that this story depicts you. It just doesn't depict you in the place of Jesus. It doesn't seem worth it until you realize that you have a part in this play, but it's not the part of Jesus. Because you see, running into a burning building is crazy unless you've been saved from a fire. Right? Forgiving those who have done you wrong seems crazy unless you've been forgiven of deep wrongdoing. Serving those who who aren't worthy seems crazy unless you've been served when you were at your most unworthy. You see, friends, living like Jesus is crazy 
and not worth it until we realize that it was us that Jesus was living like that for. You see, we can only give what we've been given, friends. Hear me again. We can only give what we've been given. We can only give unnatural compassion when we know what it's like to choose sin over Jesus, but to experience the compassion of Jesus as he says, hey, I died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. You're good, right? We only know a natural mercy when we've rejected the, the invitation of Jesus to be with him, to be together with him and denied him and rejected him, but yet received his mercy to say, no, don't, don't judge them. Don't cast stones on them. No, no, I'm gonna keep working them until, they come to know the rest that I give, right? We can only know unnatural humility when we know what it's like to demand that Jesus agree with that we are right and experience the humility of a gentle and kind God shaping and, and, and forming our hearts gently until we understand that his will is the right will and submit to him. We can only give what we've been given, friends, and there's only one place that we receive these gifts and it's from Jesus. Hear me. The biblical heroes we mentioned earlier, uh, whoever they were, Joseph, Moses, David, all of them, none of them were meant to have the final say on what heroics looked like, on what an impactful, meaningful, purposeful life looks like. In fact, they all fail at some point. They all fail. Joseph is riddled with pride. Moses calls God's goodness into question. David murders a man and takes his wife. No, they're not meant to show us what the greatest of heroes looks like. They're meant to point us toward the greatest of hero in Jesus. You want to know how to live an impactful, meaningful, purposeful life? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. But more than looking at Jesus, allow the one who died so that we could live begin to shape us, empower us, heal us, build us up, serve us humbly. It's in those moments that we become spurred not to sit on the, on, on the couch or on the bench or on the sideline, but to get in the game because no longer is it crazy to live like Jesus, but it, I long to live like Jesus because I've experienced Jesus' life for myself. Right now, living like Jesus isn't crazy when our superheroes don't wear capes and shoot webs, but die on crosses and resurrect so that we can be forgiven of sins. It's not crazy to live like that when those are our heroes. When he's our hero, that's not crazy. And friends, I, I, I deeply believe, I'm convinced that we're called to live like this, that we're called to live and be satisfied in the meaning of our lives and the purpose of our lives. That, that deep desire you have for that isn't there for no reason. It's not there for no reason. You were made to live like that. But we were never called to scrape that meaning, to scrape that, that purpose out of our own heroics, out of our own impact, out of our, our own goodness, our own worth, our own name. No, we were meant to find our story in the context of his story, to find our mercy in the abundance of his mercy, to find our humility in the abundance of his humility. This is the rhythm that we're called to live out. And that's, the, that's what I hope and desire for us as a church plant. That's what I, I'm longing for us to be. 
right? A community that experiences and knows the goodness of God, that is shaped by Jesus' compassion, by his mercy, by his humility in our own lives, that our lives become an outpouring of those very same characteristics, the very same goodness that, that we experience from God outpouring into a community that deeply longs to know what peace is, to know what joy is, to know what it is to be treated the way that, that you were created as a son, as a daughter of God, to be shown compassion that, that God desires for us to know. Man, that's what I long for us to have as a church, to be known for. That's the legacy. We want to live an impactful life. That's the legacy I desire for us to leave as, as those who started Refuge Community Church. Friends, but, but that only happens when we engage in the rhythm of knowing, knowing the compassion of Christ, knowing the mercy of Christ, knowing the humility, the unnatural compassion, mercy, and humility, experiencing it and then taking it back into the world, right? That's the rhythm, the, the rhythm of relationship that I long for, for you to have with Jesus, it satisfies the deepest parts of our heart that desire to be accepted, but motivates us to, to, to be shot out into the world, to live a life that impacts others, that, that is marked by purpose and meaning as we find our story in his story. Come on, y'all. We got, it, um, I'm gonna try to be quick here, but it really reminds me of the story of Elizabeth Elliot. And a lot of you guys may know who that is, and some of you may not. Um, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary, a missionary to Ecuador. And before she was a missionary to Ecuador, she was a student. She was actually a student at Wheaton uh, Christian College. And the whole reason she actually went there was to begin to study how to translate uh, the Bible into foreign languages. And so if that tells you anything, it should just tell you that Elizabeth Elliot was a boss, right? She was, always, she was just a boss from the very beginning. <laughs> Right, just a boss. But one of the places she desired to take the gospel, one of the languages that she desired to translate the scriptures into was the language of a, a Native American tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. And so that's where she went. She went to begin exploring the place. And it was there that she met a man named Jim Elliot. Um, Jim Elliot uh, was a, another person who, who deeply loved um, the scriptures who deeply loved the mission of God. He was, in fact, a missionary to that tribe that, that uh, Elizabeth was reaching out to. And, and Elizabeth and Jim would, would marry in 19, I believe it was 53. That's obviously where she got the name Elliot. She didn't always have the name Elliot. And they worked together. They labored alongside of each other, uh, sharing in their love for one another, but also indulging in the great love that God displayed to them in the gospel of Jesus, relishing in that. Until one day in 1956, an altercation broke out between Jim and, um, and his four other missionaries and, and some, of the tribe, uh, some of the tribesmen there in the village. And the altercation escalated. They didn't know what each other was saying, and so they were trying to defuse the situation, but, but the, the, the tribe felt... Um, dangered, and so they ended up stabbing and spearing Jim and the other four missionaries to death, leaving Elizabeth and Jim's 10-month-old daughter um, to fend for themselves. And it was in this time that Elizabeth wrote a book 
um, documenting her time in Ecuador called Through the Gates of Splendor, where she would write these words saying, I have one desire now, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. Elizabeth Elliot would absolutely do these words. She would actually return to Ecuador with her young daughter to minister and learn the language of the very same tribe that stabbed her husband to death just two years later. She would eventually get invited into the tribe and she would live with them until 1963 when she would return to America with her then 10-year-old daughter, Victoria. Elizabeth Elliot knew the depths of God's compassion, of God's mercy, of God's humility so deeply that she was able to look at the very people that killed her husband and know, but, but we long for life for you. That's who I want us to be, friends. That's who I want us to be. That's who I want this community, Dove Spring, Southeast Austin, South Austin, Austin in general, to, to experience when they interact with Refuge Community Church. And it only happens here. It only happens as we interact with God's unnatural mercy, with his unnatural compassion, with his unnatural humility, and it shapes us, it forms us. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do uh, to begin the process again of wrestling through this. It's just two quick things. The first one is that I, I want to encourage you to do something selfless. What does that mean? It means I want to encourage you to do something that you get zero recognition from. Don't even tell, like, if you're married, don't even tell, like, your spouse that you did it. Right? Just do something selfless for someone. And recognize that what you did there is the fruit not of the glory that you receive for doing it, but rather the fruit of having received God's goodness a million times over in the gift and work of Jesus. Right? Remind your heart that what Jesus has given us in his character and his love is greater than anything we could give to anyone else. And so just give it to someone. Just give someone something. Do something for someone, right? Whatever the case is, right? And just don't tell anybody that you did it. Just do it. The second thing um, is I want to encourage you to just simply, uh, simply confess sin to your brother or to your sister. We did this a couple of weeks ago, right? It seems so simple. Yet when we do it, we reinforce the interactions that God desires us to have with his compassion, with his mercy, and with his humility. We're not meant to be perfect right now. God is doing a work in our hearts, and we will be perfect one day. But at the moment, we have the beautiful opportunity to continue to bring who we are and what we do to the feet of a compassionate, merciful, humble God. Right? That is a beautiful thing. And it's what shapes and forms us and, and, and propels us into uh, the world. Let me say this. It is not a sinless person that goes out and makes disciples. It is a sinful person that goes out and makes disciples. Because a sinless person doesn't know that disciples need to be made and hearts need to be mended. The sinful person knows what it is to be mended and therefore goes out and offers mending to those who are in need. So confess sin. Um, in community group, in discipleship times, to your spouse, to your roommates, whatever it is, 
Confess that time. It will be encouraging. It will encourage your heart. If we do these things, I'm praying that we would be encouraged, that we would begin to interact with these, these, this, 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 these characteristics that are meant to shape and form us and send us out, and that it would begin to form us as Refuge Community Church, right? That that would be an encouraging uh, experience for us, that it would impact this community. And so right now, we're going to go ahead and pray and finish up, uh, and then we're going to go into a time of worship, and I'll jump back in to give a short uh, final blessing. And so if you would uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever you want to do, Uh, and pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we work through the text and we see people like Jonah, uh, even in the best of their moments, um, we recognize that they are just, they they are bite-sized tastes of the goodness that is found in Jesus. That the inspiration found in those moments is 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 a bite-sized taste of the of the motivation and inspiration found. And we understand that it was your great life that was given so that we could be taken from death to life. As we wrestle with those truths, as we accept the goodness of who you are, let it let it shape us and mold us, God. Let it shape us and mold us and send us into a, into the communities that we are a part of and for your glory and really for the good of those who live in these communities. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 